Thank you for tuning in to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor. Right now we are in a series through the book of Colossians. So grab your Bibles and let's hear from the Word. Um, game plans are important, aren't they? How many sports fans we got in here? Any sports fans? Okay, how many football fans? Okay, all right. Um, I'm a Bengal fan, so obviously I'm not a football fan, all right? Um, but football probably is one where you met, you'd better have a good game plan together. You have to intricately plan out what you're doing, unless you're the Kentucky Wildcats and you just give the ball to Lynn Bowden and say, all right, hit the end zone, right? That, that, that works for us right now, right? But most of the time in football, you've got to have these game plans set out. And, and, and coaches have these playbooks, and if you see them on the sidelines, they've got these laminated sheets that are color-coded and all this stuff, and they, they hold it up in front of them so they don't see them talking, and all, there's all this like superstition going on. They've got weird pictures and stuff over there flashing signals into, their, into the quarterback. And it used to be they don't do it so much anymore because most teams have gone to the no-huddle offense. But it used to be before a play, every team would huddle up about 10 yards back from the ball. And the quarterback, they would signal the, the play into the quarterback, and the quarterback would give them the play, and they would tell them all this, and the play would basically be in this huge book that they've had to memorize. The thing about a football play is every member on the team has to do their job or the play falls apart. Everything is intricately choreographed. Everything is intricately planned out, and if people don't do the plan, the play falls apart. But man, when everybody does their job and it works right, touchdown, right? So there's this huddle that takes place with the quarterback, and they get in there, and then they get up to the line, and that's when you get all this crazy stuff, especially Peyton Manning, you know, Omaha, Omaha, Blue 82, and, you know, Elvis's brother, and all. they start shouting all this stuff up, hut, hut, hike, and they go, and then they finally know to go. It's a bunch of chaos if you ever listen to them mic'd up. All of that to kind of give a game plan. That's kind of what I get the picture in my mind as we get into chapter 4 as we begin to read. We're going to read the entire chapter this morning very quickly together. Um, that's kind of my, what I got in my mind. We're going to be introduced to a lot of people here in this, in this uh, closing chapter. And I kind of get in my mind, there's this huddle that's getting, ready to, that's getting ready to break. Because this letter is getting ready to go to Colossae, and then on to Laodicea, and then on to Hierapolis. And so Paul is calling all of his partners together, the people that are going to deliver it, and the people that are going to split up. And right before he says break, he wants to make sure that we've got the game plan together. So as we read this, let's all just kind of join the huddle this morning. Let's join in with all these guys and let's see the game plan. Beginning in verse number two, Paul says this. He says, continue in prayer. Anytime we continue something, there's the assumption that we've already been doing it, right? Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. With all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. And that mystery, of course, is the gospel story, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward them that are without or outside the body of Christ, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he may know your estate and comfort your hearts with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They shall make known unto you all the things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, salutes you, and Marcus, uh, Marcus, uh, Marcus the sister's son to uh, Barnabas, uh, touching whom he received commandments. If he come to you, receive him. And Jesus, which is also called justice. How'd you like to be named Jesus at this point? 
right? I mean, it's like, dude, just give me another name. I can't, I can't, carry, I can't carry that off, right? So they nicknamed him Justice, who are of the circumcision, meaning that they were Jewish. These are, only my, these are my only fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort to me. And then a man named Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, salutes you, always laboring fervently for you in my, in my prayers, or in their prayers as well, that they may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that, uh, that he has a great zeal for you, and for them that are in Laodicea, and them that are in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas also greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus in the church which is in their house. And when the epistle is read among you, uh, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have thou received of the Lord, that thou fulfill it. This is the salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds, and grace be with you all. Amen. So as we see in this passage of Scripture, we see a lot of things. We're going to really focus on uh, verse number two today is where we're going to really draw our points. Um, but what we see here is we've, we've looked into this, this passage here. Um, Paul is in prison, right? We've looked at that. And little tip, anytime a preacher asks you where is Paul when he's writing this letter, uh, most of the time the answer is going to be prison, all right? Because they usually don't point that out a whole lot if he's like, you know, in Rome or something like that. But most of the time, Paul's going to be in prison when he's, writing, when he's writing these letters. And while he's there, God has made sure that he has not been abandoned. He has partners that are around him. We, we kind of learned that there's this guy named Aristarchus who ended up being Paul's cellmate. It's believed that Aristarchus was not a brother in Christ at first, but when he got to meet Paul, Paul, of course, gave him the gospel, and he was gloriously saved. And now what happens is Aristarchus is saying, if you're writing this letter to these Colossians, I don't know who they are, but I want you to tell them that I'm praying for them. I want you to send word, and I want you to send my well wishes to them. He sends greetings to the readers, and there's also mention of two guys named Tychicus and Onesimus. Onesimus we know about from the book of Philemon. Onesimus was a slave who ran away from his owner Philemon. Philemon is actually uh, the guy who has opened his house up to be uh, the church meeting place for the church at Colossae. So the letter is actually being delivered by the slave who ran away, and now he's being delivered back. If you look in the book of Philemon, it's a great story of redemption. So that's kind of the backstory that's taking place there with Onesimus. And they're going to be delivering this letter back to Colossae once the letter is finished. They're going to tell the Colossians all about what's going on, all about Paul's ministry there in prison. Then we see a guy named Mark, who is Barnabas' cousin. He may end up meeting, with, meeting up with Tychicus and Onesimus on the way uh, on the way to Colossae. So uh, Paul sends word and says, hey, welcome him in uh, to the fellowship as well. He's one that can be trusted too. We also come to meet Justice, who along with Mark are literally the only two Jew Jewish guys that are left that want to do anything with Paul. Because back at this point in Christianity, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, territorialism. There's a lot of things going, tribalism going on. A lot of the Jews felt like the gospel should not be presented to the Gentiles uh, at all, that salvation and the gospel was just something that was for the Jews. And so many of the Jews turned their back on what Paul was doing, except for Mark and, uh, uh, except for Mark and also uh, Injustice. And then we see Epaphras, and we're going to talk about him a little bit more in detail in just a minute. You got Luke the doctor. Luke is the one who writes the gospel of Luke. He's the one who writes the book of Acts. Uh, Luke is there uh, with him there in prison, so he comes to visit him too. And then a guy named Demas. They send a shout out to the Colossians too. They're like, hey man, send word. Make sure our name is in the letter so that they know we're here too. Then there's mention of a, of a person named Nympha and then a guy named Archippus. And Archippus is actually Philemon's son. And it's believed that Archippus 
has been called into the ministry. He's been called to preach. And he may eventually become the pastor of that church that's meeting there in Colossae and Philemon's house. And so he sends this encouragement. He says, hey, tell Archippus to continue to grow in Christ. Tell him not to neglect the ministry that he's been given. He needed that encouragement. And this is what we need as a church too to understand. We sometimes need encouragement. It's not always easy to do the work of a believer. It's not always easy to do the work of a church. Sometimes things get discouraging. Sometimes things get, you begin to wonder, man, is anybody else out there doing the work? And what we get from all of this, all of these partners that are listed here is we are not alone in the work of Jesus Christ. We're not alone in gospel work. So Graceway, I want you to understand this. We're not alone. We're not just on this island out here by ourselves. We are partnering with many other churches in this area, churches around the world, missionaries around the world to evangelize the world for the glory of God. Know that we're not alone. You may feel like you're all alone. Maybe you're the only person in your family who's a believer. And you're thinking, I'm all alone here. Know that you are never alone. And take the encouragement from here today that you are never alone. Christ is always with you. Hold him high and he will do amazing things. Hold him high and he'll do amazing things. And that's basically the game plan that Paul gives us. So we're going to look at uh, verses 2 through 6 today, but we're really going to focus on all three points are going to come right out of verse number 2. And so we look at a three-prong approach, a three-prong attack to maintaining preeminence in the church of Jesus Christ and in your life. The first thing is we need to make sure if we're going to be successful, we need to be prayerful. If we're going to be successful at keeping Christ first in our lives and in our church, we're going to make, need to make sure that we are prayerful. He says, look at verse number two again. He says, continue in prayer. In the Christian Standard Bible, he says, devote yourselves to prayer. It comes from that Greek word meaning what you are already doing, continue to do it. Don't give up on doing it. What we need to understand is prayer has to be a foundational ministry in any church. It doesn't matter what church you may attend. If you fail to pray, you are planning to fail. If we are not going to be a prayerful church, we will not be an effective church. If you will not be a prayerful home, you will not be an effective home. Husbands, if you are not going to be a prayerful husband, you will not be an effective husband. Wives, the same. Kids, the same. Prayer is vital to the Christian life and to the Christian existence. So a church must value the ministry of prayer. A church must also, or a believer has to call it a foundational action in their lives. We need to have fervent prayer lives. Why? Because prayer keeps us in communication with Christ. So let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you honestly had a real, long, heart-to-heart -heart talk with your Savior? See, we can't say, oh, God's first in my life, Jesus is first in my life, if we don't even care about talking with him. We have to learn to be prayerful uh, in our lives. If we are in communication with Christ, it becomes much easier to keep our focus on him. But if we're not in communication with Christ, we end up not checking in with him, him not checking in with us. It's easy for our eyes to start wandering to other places. See, Paul gives us a great example in chapter 1. We opened up this series through, through the book of Colossians. We saw that Paul basically, as he writes to the Colossians, he says, I've never met you but I'm already praying for you. I'm praying for you, and I'm what, I have you on my prayer list. He prays that they would continue to grow in their faith. He prays that they would remain fully dependent on Jesus. He prays that, that Jesus' grace alone would be their only hope, and he also prays that Jesus would be their only object of worship in this pagan town. He prays that they would bear much fruit. We see all of that in chapter 1. 
But we also are introduced to the example of Epaphras. See, Epaphras, all the way back in chapter 1, Paul says, there's this guy named Epaphras who I met while I was here in prison. I just kind of ran across him, and he's telling me about the work that's going on there in Colossae. And he's telling me about the church, and he's telling me about your first generation of just amazing faith in Christ. But now as you move into your second generation, you're beginning to want to add stuff to Christ. You're beginning to want to add things in. I don't know about you, but when Thanksgiving dinner comes around, there are some staples that I have to have on my table. I need turkey. I need stuffing. I need carrots, I guess, and vegetables so I don't feel real, real bad. But a lot of people will say uh, gravy is just like a bonus or a side. Some people will say that cranberries are just a side. You don't actually have to have it. It's just dressing. It's just something you add to it. How many of you say that dressing and, or that, that, uh, that cranberries and gravy are like a must, a necessity? I have to have it. Okay, now how many of you say, that's ah, no big deal? Add it in. Okay. All right, it's just additives. I don't know where I'm going with that. I thought I was going somewhere cool with that, but I just kind of got off. I just, I'm still thinking about Thursday coming up. Actually, what had happened was the Colossians had basically said, Jesus is the turkey. And you know what? I'm fine with him. He gives me everything I need. But a lot of people have come in with this false doctrine saying, no, you've got to add to Jesus. You've got to add some of the pagan worship. You've got to add some of the Jewish laws and things that were no longer needed for the Gentiles at that point. You've got to add all that stuff to it. What they, basically were, what they basically needed to say is, as long as I've got Jesus, I've got the main course. I've got the main dish that fully satisfies, and I don't need anything else. He's the potatoes, the gravy. He's the stuffing. He's the whole meal. He gives me everything. There, that's how I came back to it. You got it? It's pretty, isn't it? That was good. Now, if you're hungry, right? So we need to be prayerful. And he, he meets Epaphras, and they begin praying together. And Epaphras, Paul says this about him in chapter, chapter 4, in verses 12 and 13. He says, Epaphras is a praying machine. He will not stop praying. He labors in prayer. He is, just, he is wrestling with God in prayer for these churches there, that they would remain faithful, that they would, that they would uh, stay to the stuff, that they would stick to Jesus, that Jesus would be number one, and that they wouldn't get out uh, get away from that. Paul notes that he works hard. Later on in scripture, Paul notes that Epaphras just about burns out because he's constantly laboring. So that leads me to a question and leads us to this application that we need to get about being prayerful. Let me get real personal for a minute. Let me just get up in your business for just a second. Do you pray? I'm not talking about do you bow your head and say, God's neat, let's eat. I'm saying, do you pray? Do you spend honest, laborious time in prayer? And when you do, what are you praying about? Are we just praying about the stuff that we want? See, my prayer life as a kid would always get really, really good around, around Thanksgiving to Christmas time. You know why? Because I didn't grow up in a family where they, they, they talked about Santa Claus, so I knew that it didn't matter if I was good, and it didn't matter if anybody from the North Pole saw whether I was being good or not, and he, had, he was going to give me, bring me my gifts. I knew that my prayer list, or I knew that my Christmas list went straight to Jesus. I knew my parents were going to do it, and I knew that God was going to have to grab hold of their heart if they were going to give me what I wanted. So my prayer life would get really, really good between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Lord, I want this. Lord, I want the Nintendo set with the power pad. Anybody, can I get a witness? Anybody ever asked for that when they were a kid? You know? And you know what? I didn't care a thing about whether my brother next door got a doggone thing. I didn't put, that, I didn't put his list on. That was mine. My prayer life got really good. But a lot of times that's what our prayer life is pretty much about. It's about just give me my list. Just give me my stuff what I want, what I need, what I'm hoping for. When you pray, what are you praying about? When you pray, are you praying about your brothers and sisters remaining faithful to the Lord? We do a lot of times praying about people's health concerns and praying about those things, but 
Are we praying about their spiritual health as well? Are we lifting them up to the Lord, saying, Lord, help our church to remain faithful to you in a world of distraction, in a world where we're tossed to and fro and we're distracted and we're tempted to just kind of uh, compromise and say, oh, we need some of this other stuff and that'll enhance Jesus. Listen, nothing enhances Jesus. He's our everything. What are we praying about? Are we praying that they would share the gospel? Are we praying, are we doing that work of praying for one another? So here's the application that we get from this is that we must be praying for one another in order to keep Christ first. Are we praying? <sighs> yes, Lord. Uh, sorry. Uh, please take this moment to silence all cell phone devices. And, uh, your brother's calling, by the way. <laughs> all right. Um, anyway, where were we? Praying for one another, okay? We must be praying for one another to keep Jesus Christ first, right? The second thing that we need to do is we need to be committed. That's the second part of our game plan, be committed. He says this, he says, watch in the same in verse number two. He says, after he says, be committed to prayer, he says, watch in the same. Uh, in the CSB, it says to stay alert. He uses this language of a person or gives this description or this picture of a person that is willing to stay up all night and watch for people's safety, like a night watchman or a night-long security guard. Or if you've got, uh, like what we have at home, we have this awesome security system. It's an 11-pound nasty, vicious machine named Bentley, all right? I mean, when some, there's a knock at the door, he will bark, and he will bark, and he will bark. The problem is he's underneath the sheets at the foot of our bed the whole time he's doing that, right? We want to have security, and this is the kind of attitude, and this is the kind of, this is the kind of example that Paul is giving here when he says, stay alert. Why? Because if Jesus is going to be first, and if you've got Jesus first on your heart, he's sitting on the throne, you can better believe that the enemy is trying everything he can to sneak in through the back door and dethrone Christ from your heart. So we have to be wise and we have to stay awake. We have to be alert. You know why most crimes happen at night? Not just because it's dark, but it's because most people are off their guard. They're at home. They've kind of taken, take the, 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 you know, they're just in their pajamas. They're watching TV. They're winding down or they've gone to bed. Most crimes happen at night because there's less resistance. And this is the way Satan will, will attack us. He won't attack us at our strongest point. He'll try to sneak in at the, at, the, at the weakest point that he can get to. And understand this. If Jesus is first in your life, Satan will not rest until he dethrones that. He will not rest. So we must be alert. Remember the problem the Colossian church was that people were beginning to sneak in bad theology. They didn't deny Christ. They were just saying that I need Jesus and some other stuff. I need to add Jesus to it. So believers have to be on high alert, on the lookout for anything that cuts away from the preeminence of Christ. And this is why. Because when the preeminence of Christ is not lifted high, the gospel will always suffer. The gospel will always suffer. The message of the gospel will always suffer when Jesus is not first. And I believe in the church too. We will not... We will not Share the gospel when Jesus is not first. A good, a, a, a good indication that Jesus is not first in a church is when we're silent about Christ, when we're silent about the gospel, because we're more worried about other things. We're more worried about whether they sang the song I liked on Sunday or whether my group got what it needed or whether the budget gave, uh, gave this group what it needed to get. When Jesus is not first, the gospel does not get preached. But when Jesus is first... The gospel will be proclaimed with clarity because when Jesus is first, he says, if I'm lifted high, I will what? Draw all to myself. 
So Paul gives a prayer request here. He says, while we're talking about being prayerful, here's what I want you to pray for me. I've been praying for you. Pray for me. And these are three things that we have to learn from this. He, he, says, he says, pray for me that I'll have the ability to pursue new gospel opportunities. In verse number three, he says, pray that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery, uh, the mystery of Christ. See, by this point in his life, Paul has done more for the kingdom than any other one person. He's gone on like three missionary journeys. He's helped to plant churches. He's done all kinds of stuff. He's taken beating after beating after beating. He's going to be released from prison one more time, but the next time he goes into prison is when he's going to be executed. So he's toward the end of his ministry. So if anybody is probably thinking, you know what, I've done my part, it would be Paul. But what is Paul praying here? Paul is saying, pray for me that I'll, give, I'll be given new gospel opportunities. I'll be given new things that I can do. What that teaches us is it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church, what you've got on your spiritual resume. Until you have gone to meet Jesus, there's still work to do. That we still have gospel opportunities we need to be praying for as well. Paul doesn't want that spirit of just coasting to set in in his heart. And can I be honest? That's a lot of the problem in churches today in America. We're just coasting towards heaven. We've gotten too comfortable, and we're like, you know what? I think everything is just the way it needs to be, and so we're just going to coast to heaven. Well, the problem is that Jesus hasn't come back yet, and there's new generations that are springing up that still need to hear the word of Jesus Christ and still need to hear the gospel. But too many of us are just sitting by and saying, yeah, that sounds great. Somebody needs to get out there and do that. Paul said this. He's like, man, I've done everything. I've been beaten. i got scars all over my body. But you know what? Put me back in the game, coach. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. Put me back in. I'm good. Let's go. Because there's still work to be done. You see, because he realizes there's, there's joy over the one that repents than the 99 that already know him. See, we always say this, that there's, as long as there's breath in the body, there is hope for the soul. But I want to add to that, as long as, there's breath, as long as there's breath in the body of the lost, there's hope for the soul. As long as there's breath in the body of the saved, there's a message to proclaim. Our commitment to Christ is seen in how we approach the gospel opportunities that God gives us. He also prays, secondly, for strength not to waste the gospel circumstances that he has. Here's the circumstances that Paul are in. He's like, help me to speak the mystery of Christ because I am in chains because of it. He could be thinking, you know what? This preaching the gospel keeps getting me put in prison. There's a good way for me to stay out of jail if I just stop preaching. But here's what Paul says. My ministry may not be out there in the free world. My ministry may be here in prison. Because while he's in prison in this point, we do know that there's two men who have come to be saved, gloriously saved, Aristarchus and Onesimus, and others probably as well. Several other times through the book of Philippians, when you see that he's in Rome and in prison, he said, man, I led the people that were chained to me, the Roman guards, I led them to Christ too. Because if you're going to bring people around me, I'm going to bring Jesus to them. You see, because he didn't want to waste his gospel circumstances. And some of us, we would do well to heed that message because we oftentimes think that in order for me to serve Christ to the best of my ability, all of my circumstances need to be optimal. But here's a man who didn't have optimal circumstances, yet he still got busy for God. And so some of you, your optimum circumstances may be that you might be sick right now because God wants you to demonstrate to family members and friends or even to your doctor that you have a hope that goes beyond physical health. You might be right now, you may not have made the team or may not have gotten that part in the school play or you may not have gotten the job that you wanted to, or that you applied for so that you can show your friends that your identity is not wrapped up 
in having that great job. Your identity is not wrapped up in being the star of the team because you have a better and more secure identity as a child and as a servant of God. You may not have gotten that raise that you were hoping to get because God wants to teach you to value the things that really matter and to learn to be content with what you have. You see, our commitment is seen in how we approach the circumstances that God has given us. So what would happen if we, stopped, if we started viewing our setbacks as setups by God for his glory? We view too many things as setbacks in our life when God wants us to view them as setups for his glory. The third thing that Paul wanted, he wanted wisdom to fulfill the gospel obligations that he had. He, pray, he says in verse number four, pray so that I may make the gospel known as I should. We see in chapter one that Paul believed that he had been given a particular assignment. They had been given a particular ministry, a calling on his life. And Paul actually believed that everyone had that. It may be different. Your area of ministry, your area of gospel influence may be completely different than mine or the person sitting next to you. Because God sends us out into the world to make a difference for Christ. And here's the thing. Not everything that comes from heaven has your name on it. You have to understand that. Not every opportunity that comes is an opportunity for you. Not everything that comes from heaven has your name on it, but something does. Something does. So the question is, what is it? And a lot of us are really good at dodging it. Oh man, here it comes again. I need to dodge that and miss that one. Because let's be honest, those opportunities come with a little bit of fear and trepidation. They come with intimidation. They come with a little bit of uncertainty, not knowing, how am I going to do this? How are you going to show up? They come with difficult circumstances. Paul said, I want wisdom in how I should do this. And here's Paul. Paul is like the missionary. He's like the superman of missionaries. And he's still saying, you know what? I need clarity. You know what that does for me? That gives me comfort. If Paul didn't have it all figured out, how are we supposed to think that we should have it all figured out too? See, it's good when we don't have clarity because it makes us depend on God. It makes us put God first and say, God, tell me what you want. Show me where to go and I will go. Because if we got it all figured out, we don't need Jesus as much, do we? Here's a man named Paul who we would think he's probably got everything done, got everything figured out, but he still didn't. Just talking about the gospel is not going to fulfill the Great Commission. The gospel or the Great Commission is predicated upon our action. See, one of the biggest problems that we have in the church today, all across America especially, is that our generation is that we have settled for spending too much time in committee meetings and conference rooms talking about how we're going to get the job done rather than actually going out and doing the job. That's the difference between previous generations and what we call the millennial generation today. They may not always know what they're doing, but they're ready to go do it. And a lot of times that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. That's why the millennials get a bad rap. But a lot of times what we've done as a church, we just kind of sit around and talk about how we can do it, plan, scheme, all that, but we never actually get out and doing it. But we think that doing that work of talking about it is just as pleasing as actually doing it. But the gospel is predicated upon action. The gospel does no good if it just stays in a box. We've got to get it out and we've got to share it. So we have to be, and this is, the, this is what we have to understand, we have to be committed to a Christ-filled or a Christ-first, gospel-centered life. A Christ-first, gospel-centered life. See, Paul mentions one guy named Demas. See, not all these partners are still going to be around all the time. Paul mentions Demas. Later on, Demas is mentioned in 2 Timothy. Somewhere between Colossians and 2 Timothy, Demas decides that he's no longer going to do this Christian thing anymore. 
And Paul says this in 2 Timothy. He says, Demas has done me great harm because he has left the ministry loving this present world too much. What's that mean? Demas was not content on having Christ as first and foremost in his heart. He put other things on the throne and he walked away. The question for us is, are we going to be a Demas or are we going to be an Epaphras? One that sticks to it. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Paul turns his attention to what he needs, from what he needs from them to what we need to do. And in verse number 5, he says, Act wisely toward the outsiders or toward the lost, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. He says, Act wisely to the outsiders. Don't waste the time in doing it. This past week, I heard the statistics that 47% of millennial Christians consider it to be wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hope that they will one day share the same faith. One noted that this 47% viewed it to be actually an act of social aggression to share the gospel. So while the millennial generation wants to be active in doing something, they're scared about how they can bring the gospel to the forefront of the conversation. How are we ever going to get the gospel out if we don't share it? Reminds me of a song by Casting Crowns. The guy is, in the first verse, the guy is getting ready to go visit his friend who's in the hospital or on his deathbed at home, and he's basically kind of going over and contemplating. He's almost praying to God, God, give me the boldness not to waste my time, not to waste the opportunity that I have when I go in and talk to him. And sadly, the chorus is something that we all identify with too well. He says, here I go again, talking about the rain and mulling over things that won't live past today. And while I dance around the truth, time is not his friend. And this might be the last chance that I have to tell you, to tell him that that you love him. But yet here I go again, wasting my time, never opening my mouth, never sharing the gospel. We have to learn to act wisely. And the wisest thing that we can do for our lost friends and family members is to share the gospel with them. A lack of wisdom is reflected by a lack of sharing. We need to share the gospel. We can't lose sight of the ultimate goal of our human existence, and that is to glorify God and grow his kingdom. And we also can't lose sight of the ultimate goal of every relationship we have. And that is to glorify God and ultimately leverage that relationship to bring that person to Christ. And he says, let your speech be gracious and seasoned with salt. I love salt. Anybody a salt fan in here? Sometimes I'll just wait till the bag of pretzels is almost done so I can just eat the salt that falls off on the bottom. I'm just teasing. I just wanted to see people get worried about me. My doctor won't let me do it anymore. <laughs> Blood pressure or what, what, something, whatever that is, right? He says our speech needs to be salty. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to be crotchety and mean. What it means is speak in a way that makes people thirsty for Jesus. Are the words of your mouth or the things that you're talking about, does it bring Jesus into the picture? Does it make people thirsty for Christ? Speak in a way that preserves the gospel conversation. Speak in a way that calls those that we witness towards being purified in Christ. And speak in a way that communicates that Christ is our all in all. See, because if Christ is preeminent in our hearts, he will pour from our lips. If Christ is preeminent in our hearts, he will pour from our lips. And lastly, as we move to the invitation this morning, this is more of a conclusion than it is really the third point. We need to be prayerful. We need to be committed, and lastly, we need to be thankful. We need to be thankful. He says this. He says, be committed to prayer or continue in prayer, keeping watch with thanksgiving. 
can't spend much time in prayer without being overwhelmed by the goodness of God, can we? We need to have thanksgiving in our heart because a commitment to gratitude will keep Christ first in our hearts. When we're constantly reviewing the goodness of God, it makes us a lot more grateful. And we're grateful to him. We put him on the throne. We know where our blessings are coming from. It keeps Jesus on the throne of our hearts. We spent the better part of two months now dissecting this book of Colossians. Four chapters, 2,038 words. I counted them. 2,038 words, and every one of them point to this thing. Jesus is first. Jesus is first. Why? Because Jesus is good. Jesus is better to you than anyone else ever will be, ever has been, or ever can be. Combined. Jesus is good, and Jesus deserves to be first. He is first place. He's the firstborn of creation. He went first before us to suffer for our sin on the cross so that we could escape death and hell. He's the firstborn of the resurrection. He didn't just die our death. He rose from the dead and offers us resurrection and eternal life in him. I mean, did anybody else do that for you? No. Jesus has done this. And the thing is, when we deserved it the least... He was willing to do it. Not one of us deserve it. Bible says, uh, perhaps for a good person, somebody may take their death sentence, but not for an enemy. The Bible tells us that none of us qualify as good. And Jesus took our death sentence. Not only did he take our death sentence, he gives us eternal life through his resurrection over the grave. So remember that come Thursday when Thanksgiving comes about because sometimes we're not very big on gratitude towards God. We can get kind of focused on all the other junk that's going on and think, oh God, why me? Why'd you choose this? Why is this problem happening? Why did the test come back like this? Why did I just get the pink slip? Why is my marriage suffering? Why are my kids the ones that's giving, trou giving trouble? Why did that diagnosis come back that way? God, what are you doing? Tell you what God is doing. God is doing a work of redemption in your heart and glorification of his name. And even through the bad, he turns those things into beautiful, beautiful pieces that point to his glory. He turns, the, he turns beauty from ashes. He makes living things out of the dead. So outside of that, <laughs> outside of all that, what should I be thankful for? Well, I can be thankful for his marvelous works. I can be thankful for his glorious nature, for his perfect provision. I can be thankful for his abiding presence and his matchless grace. I can be thankful for his boundless mercy, for his limitless love, for his infinite worth. The greatest way to keep Jesus number one here at Graceway is to regularly revisit just how good he really is. I truly believe this church that the reason that people aren't flocking to Jesus today is because we have done a horrible job of painting an adequate picture of just how wonderful he is. Because he's not first. Because we've let other things be first. Because we've looked to other things to be our hope, to be our answers, to be our salvation. But folks, Jesus is our only hope. He's our only way. He should be our only heart. And communion is one of those things that's a beautiful expression of thanksgiving. As we get ready to go towards invitation, Scripture mentions many different expressions of thanksgiving. 
We can lift our hands in praise. We can bow our heads in worship. We can offer a gift to someone. A lot of times in Scripture, this is why we know that most of the churches uh, in Scripture were Baptists. A lot of times they got together to thank. They were eating, right? And matter of fact, one of the only ordinance, one of the only uh, two ordinances that we have in the church, one of them revolves around eating, the Lord's Supper. Many times when we come together to give thanks, the Bible says that we should break bread together. And the Lord Jesus gave us this beautiful picture of the body and of the blood of Jesus Christ in the juice and the bread. And he said, when you drink this cup, remember the blood that is shed for your sins. When you eat this bread, remember the body that was broken for you to have eternal life. Folks, that calls us to revisit the greatest sacrifice that anyone will ever pay. It calls us to be thankful. Not only does it call us to be, to be somber and to be serious about the sin that caused Jesus to have to go to the cross, but also to be thankful that while the sin caused him to go, he chose to go because he didn't have to, but he chose to so we could have eternal life. So as we're thinking about keeping Christ first in our church, keeping Christ first in our hearts, and we're closing out this book of Colossians, one of the greatest ways we can do that is to revisit his goodness, to revisit his sacrifice, to revisit his mercy, and be thankful for that. And as we get ready to receive communion here in just a moment, I want to ask you this question. As we get ready to remember him today, I challenge you to get serious with him. And as we close out this series today, get serious with him because this is an ordinance that needs to be approached with humility and with deep gratitude for the forgiveness that he has offered. If Christ has not been first in your life, come today and say, Lord, cleanse me. Lord, reveal to me what I need to take off the throne and put you on it. And for some of you, it might be really hard because you're the one sitting on the throne. And it's really hard to unseat yourself, really hard to let go of that. Let Jesus in. The Bible says that before we receive communion, we must do a personal inventory. If there's any sin that I'm not willing to let go of, then what that says is, I'm not willing to put Jesus on the throne. So ask yourself and do business this morning with every head bowed and every eye closed. Are there things in my life that I have let have the throne? If I'm gonna maintain preeminence in my life, I need to be prayerful. Lord, keep me in your will. Lord, keep me in a place where I desire you. I need to be committed. I need to be committed to him, to the gospel message, knowing that if Jesus isn't number one, the gospel just doesn't go forth in my life like it should. And I also need to be thankful.